Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us on the podcast today is equity research analyst Thomas Goldthorpe to discuss higher commodity prices, global energy market trends, and the energy transition themes he sees heading into the summer. From a commodities perspective, Thomas explains to host Brian Borsakowski that the big picture remains the Fed's attempt to lower inflation. Lower economic activity and by extension, lower energy demand is a potential headwind over the next few years that he says investors must be aware of. Turning to natural gas markets, Thomas says that an increase in supply over the next six months has led to a depression of natural gas prices, but that increases are expected in both 2024 and 2025. This podcast was recorded on June 16th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start off with sort of maybe uh, more of the general economic news and how that might be affecting commodity markets. Um, we saw the Fed pause this week. The Bank of Canada had increased rates a week before. Inflation in the U.S. came down a bit, although course still seems to be high. Um, still lots of uncertainty going on uh, and economically. What are you seeing from that and how is that affecting uh, the markets that you're covering? Yeah, so I think the big takeaway from the pause is the Fed wants to give themselves a little bit more time before they decide whether they want to continue to increase rates or not. So as you know from our economic textbooks, it takes roughly a year or two to really feel the full impact of uh, rate increases. So given that the first rate increase was 15 months ago, we still haven't really felt um, how much of an impact the rate increases we saw in 2022 will have on the economy. But I think big picture from a commodity standpoint, what the Fed is trying to do is they're trying to lower inflation, trying to slow down the economy a bit, trying to increase unemployment a bit. All this means slower economic activity and slower economic activity generally means lower commodity demand and lower, um, and by extension, lower um, energy demand. So it's a potential headwind um, over the next um, over the next year or two that we have to be uh, well aware of. Um, I wonder if you're seeing sort of that demand uh, start to come down at right now, and that like the the oil price are about seventy one dollars right now for WTI. Um, it's been up and down, and and it's lower than where it was you know earlier in the year and. Um, so, so we're not sort of we don't have high oil prices uh, to come down from at the moment. So, are you starting to see that demand uh, come off, or 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 why are we sort of seeing oil prices kind of where they are currently? Okay, so uh, to answer the two questions there. So, first on demand, demand has been a bit weaker than expected uh, year to date, and the primary driver of that is on the industrial side. So, think like products like uh, diesel. Um, so. Um, Volumes being trucked, shipped, all that other stuff has been a bit weaker than expected, as well as commodities used to produce uh, chemicals like plastics. Whereas the more consumer-driven 
uh, part of oil demand is actually coming in line with expectations. So stuff like gasoline and jet fuel. So net net demand has been a little bit weaker than expected. And then you look on the supply side, supply side outside of core OPEC has actually been uh, better than expected. Um, and then offsetting that were some of these OPEC cuts. Um, so net net, when you put it all together, uh, oil markets have been a little bit softer uh, than what was expected uh, at the start of this year. Let's talk about those cuts. Uh, we, we've seen some OPEC cuts and Saudi Arabia kind of came out and cut themselves. Could be a little confusing to people who are uh, kind of seeing the headlines. We'll break it down for us. What's going on over there? Right. So the big thing is, in general, right, OPEC cuts. OPEC has the best view of kind of what's going on in global oil markets because they sell to all the different players and they have a very real-time real time insight into what's going on the here now in oil markets. So broadly speaking, they saw slightly weaker demand. They saw higher supply. So they proactively went into the market and cut supply to help rebalance the market. And has it worked? I mean, we didn't see the price rise that much. Right. So, yeah. Right. So in general, um, OPEC cuts aren't as bullish as the broader market perceives them to be because generally it's a sign of weaker underlying market conditions. So the big thing from these cuts is uh, without them, we probably would have seen much lower oil prices. So they're more of a stabilizing mechanism in the current market than a mechanism to drive much higher uh, oil prices. Could we, if demand weakens, could we see more cuts in the future, do you think, just based on you know the patterns you've seen from them in the past? Right. So again, there's there's two trains of thoughts there. So one, they've been very proactive and aggressive in trying to support oil prices. So if oil takes another leg lower, it wouldn't be shocking if they step in and cut further. But at the same time, they have already made significant cuts. So you look at a country like Saudi Arabia, they were shipping upwards of 11 million barrels a day, and now they're down to 9 million barrels a day. So they're getting to a level where it's going to get harder and harder for them to cut, um, especially when they haven't seen big price spikes in their past cuts. So we're getting to a point where it's going to be harder for OPEC to cut. So they probably will still cut if you do see materially lower oil prices. I wonder what is sort of the end game there in that. Is there a price that, uh, you know, OPEC wants to get to? Um, I guess how yeah, they, they could keep, yeah, as you said, they might cut a little more. But where is that price level that would satisfy them or saying, hey, we're, we're good. We don't need to cut. Things, things are better now. Right. So. Big picture, uh, they don't talk explicitly to price. They're always a bit cautious of talking about managing price because they don't want to be viewed as a cartel. Um, so um, instead, they talk to trying to balance the market. But talking to uh, various global contacts, the chatter is, yeah, their price band that they want to keep oil in is kind of in that 70 to 80 or 70 to 90 Brent price. So you take $5 off of that to get to a WTI price. So let's call that 65 to um, 75 type type price range where uh, they would like to see oil prices. Right. So we're sort of, yeah, on the low end of that now, I guess, today. Exactly. We are also going into uh, 
the summer season and uh, which I can't wait for ready to get in my car and drive to the cottage uh, and as a lot of people are so typically I think now what, what do you usually see demand increase but if we are going to a weaker economic period is there worry that people might stay home what's sort of the thinking around the summer season which should be the busiest for demand right so generally seasonally the highest demand periods um, or seasonally the oil is the strongest in June uh, in May and June because uh, generally you buy advance because the refiner has to buy the oil and then they have to refine the oil and sell the oil um, through the summer. So there's a bit of a you buy first and then you sell later once it's fully processed and once, once it's fully distributed. So right now is, broadly speaking, um, a very strong period for demand. So it is a little worrying that we're in um, kind of peak demand periods and still not seeing um, stronger uh, oil prices, because as we get um, move further along in the year, then we get actually negative seasonality. Um, so it'll be interesting to see all how all that plays out. Um, let's let's move on to gas. Gas has obviously also been a big topic uh, when it comes to geopolitics. How do the natural gas markets look today? You know, a year and 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 a few months after um, the crisis in Ukraine and and other issues in Europe. Okay, so there's kind of two two separate gas markets. Like gas is generally a very local market, given that it's uh, a little more difficult to transport and store than oil. So in the European market, um, you've effectively had uh, prices come down materially. They popped up recently on supply outages, but still much lower than we were in the second half of last year. And the big thematic there is Europe has come up with ways to consume less gas, uh, whether through product switching in and so stuff like burning more coal or using more um, oil and NGLs for power gen and also just overall lower consumption. So uh, there's technical recession in some uh, European countries and there's been some shifting of industrial production away from Europe due to high energy prices. So Europe has generally been able to both lower their production and lower their demand uh, for natural gas and also uh, these high prices have induced a lot more LNG into the European market to allow that market to remain stable in the face of um, these fairly large Russian cuts. And then if you move over to the U.S., they had very high prices in 2022. Um, <clears throat> the market does what it does best is prices are high, uh, new supply comes to the market. A lot of supply came to the market over the last six months. That has now depressed uh, natural gas prices, but then we should see a slow increase back up uh, in gas prices in both 2024 and especially 2025, uh, as we'll see a wave of new LNG capacity uh, come uh, to the U.S., which will increase natural gas demand and um, set a higher floor for natural gas prices. Um, we, we uh, you know, I, we'll talk about renewables, but but I wonder um, the conversation has sort of. Uh, there was this idea that we don't maybe don't need oil anymore, and uh, and especially kind of before um, you know last year, March of last year. And I wonder if the conversation that you're hearing from people that you talk to has changed, where um, we need maybe everything, or how does it feel like the, there's a sort of a broader a changing perspective on kind of the energy sources that uh, that the world needs to to keep moving forward? Absolutely. So I think the conversation has really changed uh, over the last um, three to four years. So I think there was a belief three to four years ago that if we all get together, we all want to move to zero carbon uh, powered economy, uh, that we could 
snap our fingers and do it in three to five years. And now it was sort of like an app rollout on your phone that everyone can just download Instagram. Everybody has it. And in a couple of years, it's fully, fully ubiquitized and everyone has it. But I think what has occurred since then is a greater understanding that, yeah, to build out a fully renewable power stack uh, takes time. And there's a lot of actually physical work that needs to be done on the ground to make that happen. So for example, you could say, hey, I want to build all these wind turbines tomorrow, uh, but you're going to run into some headwinds, right? So first, a lot of people don't want wind turbines in their backyard, so you have a lot of NIMBY issues. Also on the NIMBY side, you actually have to build power lines. So think in your house, would you want a big power line in your backyard? Probably not. So actually getting these things built actually has proven to be a lot more difficult than people expected due to permitting issues. Um, and then you have to actually source the physical material. So there's a lot of concrete, there's a lot of like actual wind turbines and all the supply chain bottlenecks we've talked about. So you have to source all the materials and then you actually have to find the labor and the construction labor to actually build all this stuff. So, um, so all this to say that it actually takes a long time. Even if you're fully committed, you have all the money to do it. It actually does take time to get all these renewables built. And in the intermediate time, there's a strong role for uh, hydrocarbons to play, help bridge that gap from where we are today to a full zero carbon grid. And um, yeah, greater appreciation that there is some transition fuel, so stuff like natural gas. So though natural gas isn't perfect, it still emits um, GAGs. Um, it can be used as a transition fuel versus something like coal, uh, which has much higher emissions and much higher, actually, toxic emissions as well. Um, and also natural gas's role in being used as a uh, intermediate power source. So the big issue with stuff like wind is sometimes the wind's blowing and that's awesome, and sometimes it isn't. So you need some temporary power that can turn on, turn off, and natural gas is very good for that. Um, so wrapping it all together, I think there's just a greater understanding that um, this transition won't happen overnight, that this is a long 10, 20 year journey. And then hydrocarbons do play a role in, in helping making that switch uh, as smooth as possible. So um, then on sort of the renewable energy side, kind of moving to, to those kinds of sources, what do you see there? I mean, there is progress being made, more energy renewable is getting used kind of in the global economy. Um, where, what progress are we making on the renewable side? Um, and, and kind of what are you seeing as its overall mix of of our energy sources? Yeah, so you're seeing, um, pro, um, seeing progress on, on multiple fronts. So just, just using the US as an example, I think I read this, um, I was just looking at the DOE stats. I think 10 years ago, coal produced 10 times as much energy in the US as renewables. And I think today renewables actually generate more power in the US than coal does, both from lowering, um, shutting down coal plants, but also increasing renewables. So your renewables continue to take a greater share of the overall global power generation. And also, I think there's just a greater level of pragmatism in how to deal with the transition. So the good example there is nuclear. Um, three, four years ago, nuclear was seen as being ESG bad. Um, but now I think there's a greater understanding that nuclear can play a very positive role in providing a zero carbon power to the grid. And now it's kind of being brought in as one of the potential solutions uh, to this transition. And I think to that final point, um, there's also an understanding, there's not one solution. It's not solar will be 100% of the grid and that solves everything. It's, hey, let's use 
20 different sources of renewable or sustainable power. And each one of them will have their little niche. But when you add it up, um, it can provide the total bridge to um, a zero carbon economy. Great. And just, just on nuclear, if we could dig into that a little bit more, um, where are you seeing investments being made in nuclear? It's always, yeah, been a controversial topic for whatever reason. And I wonder, is this, is the opinion shifting on nuclear and where do you see kind of investments being made in Canada or what countries or areas of the market are, uh, are embracing that? Right. So I wouldn't say we're seeing um, shovels in the ground investment yet on nuclear, but we're seeing much more support of it from places like the Canadian, the European uh, governments and the U.S. government. So you generally being, when they think about sustainable frameworks, nuclear used to always be excluded from it. And now they're increasingly being included in these frameworks. Uh, more money is definitely being spent on small modular reactors. So the dream is you have a little box, it generates power, you just plug it in, you can drop it off where you want. Um, and that's very attractive. Um, and the big thing you always have to, though, at the same time, you have to consider with nuclear is nuclear is very, very long cycle. So if I decide to say, hey, I want to build a nuclear power plant today, you again, you run into that NIMBY issue of who wants a nuclear power plant in their backyard. So it's very hard to find a site where you can actually build a new plant. Then to do all the safety concerns, it probably takes you five years. If you said, okay, today I want to build, it takes you five years to permit. And then to actually build it generally takes another five years. So you're talking about a 10 year from I want to do this to when you actually get your first power. And then with nuclear as well, you always have the risk of cost overruns. And uh, even in places like China that built a lot of nuclear power plants, they've also run into those issues of cost overruns and is that has taken longer than expected. So there is increased focus on it. We haven't seen shovels in the ground yet, but there's clearly more of a push and more uh, receptivity to, to nuclear power as a long-term solution. Um, we have a we have a few more things to get to, but we have a question from from an advisor that uh, I'm, I want to ask you. So, would you say LNG and oil prices are dictating the economies of Europe with the current recession? And how does reversion to coal meet the green objectives? Right. So the first thing I think when you looked at power prices in 2022, uh, they definitely had an impact, and oil prices too definitely had an impact on the economy, and definitely led to um, Yes, slowing economic outcomes for that region. Uh, today, power prices are still elevated, but nowhere near to the extreme that they were in the second half of last year. So I'd say the here now, it's less of an impact. So on the margin, you do have still have some industrial switching away from Europe into other parts of the world with lower power prices. But net net, as we stand here today, it's probably not a huge uh, negative uh, impact on the economy. Um, and sorry, what was the other part of that question? Uh, just how does reversion to coal meet the green objectives? Right. So it clearly does not meet the green objectives. Uh, but ultimately, I think when push came to shove, they were backed into a corner and it was effectively do people potentially, um, do we go into a much deeper recession or do we burn more coal? And ultimately, they decided to burn more coal. Um, there's an, another question um, around just nuclear and I guess the shortfalls of nuclear, other than maybe sec the security issue. Um, are there any, I guess, yeah, shortfalls that people need to keep in mind as they're as we're building kind of more nuclear opportunities? Yeah, the shortfalls are one, it just takes a long time to get these built. Two, 
it's actually hard to get it built to find a new site where you can actually build a nuclear facility because nobody wants a nuclear facility in their community. And then there's obviously meltdown risk. Um, and then finally, yeah, these projects have, um, at least the ones built in the Western world, have generally proved to be, uh, more recently have proved to be economically unattractive, uh, just given the sheer cost and the cost overruns and the time overruns in building them. Um, so that's that's yeah. the primary feedback. And, and it's just a really big check that you have to write. So the nice thing with wind is you can build 10 turbines, you can build another 100 turbines here, 100 turbines there, maybe spend $100 million here, $100 million there, which is still a lot of money, but you can do it very on a very modular basis. Whereas nuclear, you have to say, okay, I want to spend $10 billion, I want to spend $20 billion all at once. And I'm going down that path. Uh, so it's just a much bigger check much bigger commitment, much longer commitment than um, building a wind farm or building a, a solar farm. I've got another one more question uh, from the audience. Uh, the timeline, what are the timelines for China and India, which obviously, you know, constitute 40% of the world's population to meet that transition from coal to renewables? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think China, I'm stepping out of my area of expertise here, but I think China has committed to, um, carbon emissions uh, in I think it's roughly 10 years I think it's 2030 but the big thing there is China actually is um, you could say it's carbon or you can say it's their drive for energy security um, that they are actually pushing hard into renew or you could say it's actually they want to create this export industry of renewables uh, but China is pushing hard in certain areas um, like EV cars um, and some renewable installations um, to drive uh, lower carbon, but also they're clearly uh, ramping up coal, coal production and burning. Um, so there is some, um, some balance there. Right. Since we're on the topic of China, obviously the China reopening uh, has been big news, uh, maybe going a bit slower than expected. What are you seeing from China, China's reopening and maybe the impact it's also having on, on the markets, on the commodity markets? Yeah, so I think China is reopening uh, but yeah, it hasn't been as quick as expected. So the thing is, right when it opened, they did some stimulus. More recently, yeah, they've announced some stuff, but it's not overly material. So I think the view, at least the view today, is um, the Chinese government wants more sustainable growth, and they're willing to accept lower offline growth in exchange for higher quality underlying growth and allow the economy to rebalance and become more sustainable. So. The view is, at least thus far, they have not stimulated as much as people expected. Therefore, forward outlook for commodity demand over the next six to 12 months is likely lower today than it was six months ago. What about, I mean, the other big story over the last year has been the IRA, um, which is the Inflation Reduction Act from the US, Canada's response to that. Uh, they, they, you know, put some measures in the in the uh, federal budget to try and kind of counter some of the stuff in the IRA. It's been a few months now since that budget came out. What are you seeing where investments going, or in terms of that response to to the IRA? Right. So the story with the IRA came out offered very attractive subsidies to various uh, renewable sources of power, a generation in other renewable areas, and what that's done is effectively on a global basis is sucked a lot of investment from Europe, from Canada, from Asia, into the US. Uh, so the US is, um, it's, it's a boom time for kind of new renewable projects and everyone's working to catch up. So the Canadian government has 
post um, post some um, some changes to their subsidy framework. But in general, even today, um, if a dollar that can go anywhere and can invest anywhere is generally going to the U.S. because I get better subsidies in the U.S. for that renewable investment. Um, okay, we talked a lot about we talk about the just the energy markets all day, but let, let's talk a bit about the investment uh, you know uh, opportunities here. When you look at the markets, uh, are there spots within energy that look more attractive than others? What are you kind of looking for as an analyst and, and the opportunities out there? Right. So I think uh, within a global context, I think Canadian energy is a very attractive place to invest today, uh, especially versus the U.S. market. So on one hand, it's trading at a big discount. So it generates much higher uh, free cash flow on average. Two, they have a better um, better inventory position, whether it's the oil sands or whether it's in the Montney. Canadian companies generally have much better inventory positions than U.S. companies. So it means that discounted valuation is actually sustainable or even more sustainable than the, the, the U.S. stocks. And the third thing is um, there's been a lot of ESG headwinds, especially in the oil sands over the last couple of years. Um, however, I think the Canadian industry has actually done a very good job counter those headwinds through things like the Pathways Initiative, which is a pledge uh, to go net zero on scope one and scope two basis by 2050. And due to the nature of the oil sands assets, it actually um, is very well suited to CCUS. Um, so it's a very credible goal. Um, when we put that together, um, I think Canada actually is a very attractive um, place for uh, energy investment in today's world. Are we seeing more? I mean, there was a concern a few years ago that people weren't investing in Canada. Um, has that come back? I mean, I guess aside from the IRA, but you know, are, is there more attention from investors in Canada now? There is incrementally more. So we haven't seen a wave of investment, but we have seen um, incrementally more investment. So a good example is um, there's a stake in an uh, oil sands project called Surmont. Um, Suncor had agreed to buy it, but ConocoPhillips, so a U.S.-based uh, EMP company, had a rofer, so had the ability to had a right to purchase that asset at the same price as Suncor uh, under a historical agreement, and they actually ended up buying the asset. So that was the first time, um, at least since I've covered the space, that you've seen a foreign company actually buy a Canadian oil sands asset. Whereas the trend over the last five years has very much been foreign companies selling um, Canadian assets. So, and then we've seen also in kind of some recent deals that uh, U.S. companies have been doing kind of more diligence and are exploring more opportunities in Canada, especially as their opportunity is that in the U.S., specifically U.S. shale, gets smaller and smaller by the day. You, just, you mentioned CCUS before, and we should we should talk quickly about that too. Carbon capture. A lot of people are talking about it. Um, how much progress is being made on the carbon capture side right now? Um, so progress is being made, but realistically, it's been slower than expected, as there has been some regulatory hurdles and also some of the subsidy hurdles as well, just trying to get all your ducks, ducks in a row. Um, but on saying that, um, the setup's real, pathways commitment's real, and the beauty of CCUS in Canada, especially Alberta, is that's very and the oil sands is very well suited because the carbon is very concentrated in a few key sites. Um, those key sites will be around for the next 40 or 50 years. So it makes sense to actually invest in them and put the capital in to capture the carbon. 
And then once you capture the carbon, you don't have to transport the carbon very far to put it into the ground. So some of the most economic um, um, EMP sites in the world to capture carbon is actually in Canada. Um, we just have a, we have a couple of minutes left, but we just got a question in that I think is worth addressing at uh, at the end here is uh, what where are we at with the energy infrastructure in regards to the push towards EV integration? Um, yeah, so I think um, it is a topic of discussion. I think there is concerns that there may not be enough capacity on the grid uh, to handle a massive rise in EVs, sort of like what we saw in California. Um, so I think there is a focus on that topic. Um, there is some understanding that you can't close down all your hydrocarbon um, power generating sources immediately without backfilling with renewables. Um, and there is talk to improving um, grid, grid capacity. But with a lot of those issues, especially grid capacity, um, it's been slow. And you run into the same NIMBY issues that we've talked about before, which is on one hand, everybody wants EV, 100% EV penetration, but if that means having a new power line in your backyard, then they all of a sudden don't want that power line in the backyard. And sometimes it's actually hard to add new uh, capacity to the system without building new power lines. Great. Uh, I'm going to leave it there. We're at time. This was a great wide-ranging discussion on all, all, all things energy. Looking forward to chatting again. Thank you so much for being here. Great. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.